All right, so if you would open your Bibles and or your pew Bible, grab one of those in front of you, page 1001 is where you're going to find the beginning of the book of Hebrews. And like I said a few moments ago, we're not going to spend a lot of time reviewing the idea of foreshadowing or typology. We're going to let that kind of hang in the background. I will bring it up as uh, there's going to be a lot of therefores and senses that we look at. And what I want you to remember is that all of that is saying, since Jesus Christ has fulfilled the old covenant, since Jesus Christ has surpassed all creation by rising from the dead as the firstborn of a new creation, therefore, this is what you may hope in. Therefore, this is how you should live. Therefore, this is where we are going. It is all founded upon Jesus being the fulfillment of every promise ever made by God in the history of his holy covenant and even before and beyond that. All right, so we're going to open by looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, which, again, as I give you these little sections this morning, the hope here is that you'll find one of them or two of them that really speak to you. And you'll make a note about that. And then this week, you'll look at that section again. You'll maybe read that little section of a few verses every day this week. What you'll find if you do something like that is it will become familiar with you. You will start to remember these words. You might even find yourself saying them out loud to somebody else as a bit of encouragement. And wouldn't you know, that's how the church of Jesus Christ grows and lives. It's when the word doesn't fall on deaf ears, but enters our ears and our hearts so that we keep it and that we dwell within it. And then eventually again, it starts to come forth as what? As hope. As hope. Okay, so first section to kind of consider looking at again this week is just chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It hangs together very nicely by itself. It says this, Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The idea, very simply, there's an Old Testament. There was a lot of stuff that happened in that Old Testament. He spoke to Abraham by the angel of Yahweh. He spoke to Hezekiah by one of the prophets that he sent. Various times, various places, different men carried by the Spirit. That's how it was. Okay, verse 2. But... In these last days, notice we're in the last days. Jesus Christ's resurrection is the ushering in of the last days. There's no like later on, someday we find the Antichrist, pin the tail on him and there's a big war. No, we're in the last days now. The war has been won now. We guard the deposit looking for his return. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This is why the New Testament church clung to the Holy Gospels as they were written, because they carry the words of Jesus. That's why we stand when those Gospels are read. That's why also we kept the words of St. Paul and St. John and St. Peter, because Jesus himself sent them as his apostles. That means ambassadors. That means they speak for him. So in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We have a New Testament revelation that we cling to because this son has been, and says whom, he, God the Father, appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
right? So not only is this son who has come to speak of us, speak to us, one with the God who created the world, but now in his taking on human flesh and his purging of human flesh from sin, from death, and from the power of the devil, he has become the heir to everything. He's inherited everything. And most importantly, he has inherited you, right? You are his vassal now. You are his chosen ones now. You belong to him now. Who is he? Verse 3, the focus is on Christ early on here. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's incarnation talk. That's he's God made flesh talk. Yeah. And currently, as a man, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's kind of amazing to think about it. There's a guy running the universe now. Not just a God. He's a God too. But he's a God who's just a dude. A guy with a human hands, human heart, human head. And by the word of his power, which is eternal. He upholds all things for you, I mentioned, after making purification for sins, right? That's his death and his resurrection. That's the atoning sacrifice in his blood. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. All of this, again, is emphasizing what we might call Christology. Who is Jesus? And the answer from God is that he is both God and man, that he has done this in order to die, and he has died in order that you might live. Also with his death, also with his surpassing death in resurrection, he has surpassed this age in his ascension. Notice how it mentioned how he has sat down at the right hand of God. We confess that in the creed. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. The ascension is something that you do well to ponder in these gray and latter last days in which we dwell, in which it looks like everything is falling apart the entire world over. And in fact, it is because it always has been. If you've been shocked the last two years and been like, what happened? All that happened was you woke up to see what was really going on all along. Yeah? That evil men have been using evil schemes to put down the poor and build great barns for themselves to create a security for themselves in this veil of tears as if it were a lasting kingdom, which it is not. He has ascended above and outside of this, not in order to make it all go away, but in order to grab you from it as history moves along, like one who reaches down to pluck brands out of the fire or to push you into a boat himself, his church, believers in all times and places, a boat sailing over this raging flood of demonic evil with the certainty that we're heading toward a better country, that we're going to land on the mountain of God and there we shall dwell in innocence and righteousness forever. Yeah. All of that's here in this incarnational idea that God has become man and now returned to highest heaven to rule in the midst of his enemies. Let's jump ahead to chapter 2, verse 1. The intermittent section is an emphasis on his godness and his not being just an angel, but we don't have to spend time on that right now. Chapter 2 says, 
Therefore, remember I said there's going to be a lot of therefores and senses, and they're all because you've been bought by the blood of Christ. Okay, so let's not forget you've been bought by the blood of Christ. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Think about that now again. Have you bemoaned the failure of the church in the modern age? If you haven't, I invite you to join me. Please bemoan the failure of the church in the modern age. COVID was just the tip of the iceberg. The church has been across denominations on a slide into non-attendance for two generations, filled up with people who are either skeptical of what we teach or content with their lives here, and so not really interested in what is taught. As a result, many have drifted away. And this is then very much a warning. Therefore, we who remain must pay much closer attention to it. We must cling to it. We must guard it. And truly, we must repent on behalf of all people. What do I mean when I say repent? I mean simply say, Jesus, I repent. You don't even have to know what for. You just have to know that that's what he needs from us now. Jesus, I repent. Help me to see. Help me to be wise. Show me the way to go. That's the Christian life. That's every day, right? That's not what you do sometimes or when it gets bad. It's always, always today. I want to pay closer attention to what is true, to what is lasting, to what will not pass. The warning continues in verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, he's referring to the prophecies of old there, the many and various ways, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. He's referring to the old covenant law, how if you did this or that, you were stoned or you were put out of the community. Since the old covenant was harsh, he says, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. Since punishment on your sin is a big deal, if you decide, I don't care if I'm saved, how are you going to escape? You have nowhere to go, right? You're all alone now. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, that is the witnesses of the resurrection, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. All of that is, again, a reference to his resurrection and the life of the church in the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit fell upon the people as a sign that Judaism had passed away and the New Testament in Christ's blood has come. His question is, how shall we escape the coming fires of hell if we choose to not think about that? If we choose to let other things be more important than that, if we, again, drift away. Now, he will go in the next couple of chapters to focus on this typology foreshadowing idea. We're going to skip over that and just hear him say, you need to read the Bible, my friends. Chapter 5, verse 11 is where we're going to start. Chapter 5, verse 11. Now, he says, about this, we have much to say. That's all the beginning of Melchizedek and the temple. Indeed, we could spend hours on it, but I don't want to spend hours on it this morning. So like him, we're going to leave that behind. It is hard to explain, as he says, since you have become dull of hearing. Well, that's an interesting point. Maybe it sounds offensive. You're dull of hearing. The challenge is we are. 
We are biblically illiterate. If I talk about the northern and the southern kingdoms and Rehoboam, do you know? Just like that? No, we don't. And I have to take the time to explain it every time. If I talk about the mercy seat in the tabernacle, do you know? Not all of us do, right? And so we are dull of hearing. We are a people who have forgotten what made us strong. For though, he says in verse 12, by this time you ought to be teachers. Remember how I said, if you say the word every day, it'll start coming out of you, right? I mean, it's not that hard to become one who confesses the faith publicly. You ought to be, but still you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. All right. I want to talk about this milk solid food idea here. Many people think this is about moving on from talking about how Christ is the Savior to talking about what you're supposed to be doing now. But they're not paying attention to the text. It doesn't say, let us move on from the doctrines of Christ. It says, let us move on from the elementary doctrine of Christ. And he's also just talked about how the Old Testament, all its stories are fulfilled in Jesus. So you can go back to something as obscure as Melchizedek, and you can talk for three hours about how Jesus fulfilled that. But we're not ready for that. That's solid food. That's too much. But see, him bringing up milk versus solid food is not so that you will sit there and say, yep, I'm glad with milk. That's all I really need. What he wants is for you to get a little frustrated. Yeah, that's the point of this preacher. Wait, wait, wait. You just insulted me, preacher. Mm-hmm. I did. I said, you're lazy. I said, you don't give enough attention to this. I said, you have idols in your house that you bow down to and worship and you don't even know it. What do I mean? What I mean is that when you decide you need to rest, you don't open your Bible. But that's what rest is, according to the Bible. This is the day of rest right now. What we're doing, this, this is the rest for your souls. You want solid food. You want to be one who chews on the meat. Well, then again, you have to embrace this as something that you know so that someone doesn't have to tell you again, but you begin to be the one who encourages others. Or at the very least, in these gray and latter days, encourages yourself. Because how easy it is when you turn on that talking head at home, or maybe, like me, you scroll it on Twitter. How easy it is to get despairing and depressed and dark and see how it all seems like too much. You know why? You're listening to the wrong words. You're listening to words about this life being all that there is. You're not even eating the milk anymore. You're eating poison. Yeah? Now, I'm not saying don't know what's going on in your world. And I'm not saying never flip on the boot box. You can do it if you need to, right? But what I am saying is this. If you do that without the other, if you never eat the solid food at all, then you're going to be those who drift away. I think, I think these days have clearly shown that to us, how easily people have been deceived. Yeah, I think you know what I'm talking about there. All right. So again, to go on to solid food does not mean to leave behind Jesus and move on to you and your works. 
it means very specifically to start reading the Old Testament in view of the New Testament. The New Testament is clear. Repent, be baptized, turn away from sin, walk with the church of God, feast upon the Lord's Supper. The Old Testament is, there's a guy named Melchizedek. What does that mean? There was a temple where they shed a bunch of blood. What does that mean? That's the solid food we want to go on to. Yeah, going on to maturity, as 6 verse 1 says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That is, do I have to convert you every week? I think Lutherans can be accused of this, by the way. Law, gospel, sermon, sandwiches. You haven't heard one here for a while, but I did used to preach them myself. Where every week I just tried to say, law, 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 gospel, 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 gospel. And I kind of hoped that your conversion would be enough and you'd go on because I had told you the theory about how Jesus saves. Now, it's not that that's a wrong thing. It's not that that story doesn't exist in the Bible. What the author of the Hebrews is saying is you don't need to learn that Jesus is your Savior every week. You need to see how he fulfills the Old Testament every week. You need to get deep into how the Psalms are your prayer book, how the prophets prophesy your future, how it again is your Bible. Not laying again a new foundation of repentance. Verse 2, and of instructions about washings. I mentioned baptism earlier, right? Do I have to tell you what baptism is? Or can we as a church know what our small catechism says and believe it enough that you tell each other what it is? The laying on of hands, that's ordination, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. Now, is he saying we never talk about these things? No, he's saying we find these things in the Old Testament. That's what he wants to encourage us to do. And to do that, though, you've got to know your New Testament. That's why this year, one way or the other, I'm trying to get you just to open this book at home. Find a passage, reopen it. And if you want to dwell on what does it mean to be mature, come back to chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 3, where if God permits in the future, we'll go on and talk more about such things. But for this morning, I want to jump ahead now to more of this we have to hold fast idea. Chapter 10, verses 19 and following. You've got to flip a few pages here. Flip a few pages here. In the intervening space, he has again and again emphasized something. Okay, so just because he insults you and says, you need too much basic instruction. You don't know enough for me to really teach you about the Bible. This is kind of sad. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean you're not a believer. He's just trying to stir you up. He's trying to get you to focus in. He's, he's trying to wake you up a little bit here. But why does he do that? Well, because both the milk and the solid food are the fact that you have every confidence to believe that you're a son of God now. Yeah? The milk, the foundation of repentance and to forgiveness is the fact that Christ has claimed you as his own to make you a son of the Father, a vassal of the Lord, and a temple of the Holy Spirit. You've been adopted as a brother of Jesus in his blood. You've been submitted to Jesus himself as your king. And the Holy Spirit, by that knowledge, awakens faith within you, meaning he dwells within you so that you confess he is risen. Alleluia. You can't confess that if the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in you. So he dwells in you, making you the temple made without hands, right? Not wood and stone, but a people who confess his holy name. That confidence now is what he's going to talk about in verse 19. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that means you can pray our Father who art in heaven. You can know God is your Father. Since you can enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that's a reference to the temple, but how he points it forward, that is through his flesh, right? So we, we enter into the Father's family through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, there's that baptismal talk again, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, that's the last day, drawing near. There's so much in there besides just the baptismal talk. Uh, 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 My heart kind of goes multiple directions here in what I want to talk about. Let's just, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. When you come to church, where are you going? Do you know you're not entering the house of God? You are the house of God together. You people are the temple of the Spirit together. And when you draw near in the full assurance of faith, what that means is you know that the true God is your God and that he is for you rather than against you. So that again, when you see the evils of this world, which are not hard to find, you can rest assured that they are not going to tear you from him. Now again, it is the common theme that we have learned through the mass media we have been imbibing for two and a half generations. It is the common theme that America is the greatest country there has ever been and that it will continue being great forever. We have arrived at paradise. Whether or not you actually think it, that is what we have all been led along. And now again, you've been waking up and realizing, you know, it's not quite that way. This looks like totalitarian. What on earth? Okay, so you're having those kinds of moments. This is not new. Being considered serfs by your elites is not new. This is normal. This is the way life often is. And this is why we are glad that he is the king of a better kingdom, a coming world. But again, what that means is you can no longer put your hope in this life. Your hope is that you and yours are walking through this life to a place where together the king will be good and not evil. That is the assurance of faith it talks about, that we would then come in knowing that, knowing we're sojourners, knowing we're moving through this place, and then offer prayers for our nation and our city and our community. But only knowing that these things will rise and fall And if he decides to let the whole thing get blown up with the bomb and we all go away, that's actually better. That's actually good. Like your death, you're in heaven, right? Not so for the unbeliever, but so for you. Remembering that hope, that assurance again of faith is key. 
holding fast that confession without wavering, knowing that the war that you have is not so much to convince a bunch of other people to believe this. The war that you have is not for getting it yourself. Because again, the messages out there, you can't avoid them. There are too many. They break into your house and they tell you what to think and what to feel, right? So what is the war? It's to fight back with the words of God, to speak them out loud yourself so that you hold fast to what you know and you let no one take your crown. Recognizing that the way that we are made to sojourn together is to gather together. That alone, a coal brought out of the fire loses its fire. But within the fire, it is kept heating and warm until it burns all the way through. And so, I mean, how do I say this? Attendance, attendance. St. Paul, our attendance is, is so-so. It's so-so. I mean, you look around here, we're, we're, we're a little down this week. Now, it's post-Christmas, that happens. There's a big snowstorm, that happens. I, I don't want to, you came, right? So I don't want to beat you up over it, but, but this is something to be aware of. That one thing that 2020 has done to all churches, including ours, has diminished our regular attendance so that some have ceased to meet together and that's become their new habit. That should not be. And what he's encouraging us here to do then is to look around at all those that we know and say, come, let us meet together. Let us pray to our God. Do we want better days? Who's going to do it? Jesus is going to do it. So let us again approach him in full assurance, repenting like we do every day. I don't even know Jesus, but I know I need you. And trusting that in our worship together, that is the ship that sails through these tides. Yeah. Um, Considering also how to stir each other up toward love and good works. Okay. Um, We're going to jump ahead here again to chapter 11 should be on the same page, page 1007, in, in your pew Bible at least. Chapter 11 is probably the most famous chapter in the entire book. It's the chapter of the catalog of the heroes of faith. All these people of the Old Testament, that's your solid food, who lived on promises, looking forward to what would come, and many of them never receiving it in their lifetime. He brings this up again so we'll understand we're not living as Christians for this lifetime. We're living for the next lifetime. Yeah, And that is what it means to live by faith. Chapter 11, verse 1 talks about, defines faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Do we see Christ in his ascension? No. Do we hope for his return? Yes. All of that is faith alone. So also, this is not new. By it, faith, the people of old received their condemn, condemn, that's wrong, received their commendation. It's a good word. They received uh, God's blessing. The way we say this as Lutherans, they were justified by their faith, right? And so verse three, by faith, we understand The universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It'll go on then and talk about Abel. You can see him in verse four. Verse eight, Abraham. Abraham goes quite a while till verse 23. Moses crossing the Red Sea in verse 29. And then he kind of gets tired of the talk in verse 32. What more shall I say? 
time will fail to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. But now look down at verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. What he means is they never saw Christ come. They died still waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. We live on the other side of that. We have the New Testament Holy Spirit poured out according to the book of Acts. We know Christ has come, Christ has died, and Christ will come again. But see now, that's what joins us with them. We have the fullness of the promise of what shall be, but it is not here yet. And so again, the walk is to cling to the hope of what is to be, the race toward the grave. Look at chapter 12 then here, which we had read a few moments ago, um, where it says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the idea here is all of those Old Testament saints in the Old Testament, the solid food there, they show what it means to sojourn and walk toward and die without the promise being fulfilled here. Since we have that as our food, as our narrative, as our story for the day, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. The idea here is not that you would be sinless, right? But that you don't let your sin get in the way of knowing that Christ is for you today. Uh, that you, when you find the sin again within you, you know that to repent, say, Lord Jesus, help me to overcome this, is what faith is. That is what the Holy Spirit does in you. And that then together is to run with endurance the race that is set before us. This life is a race, not a test, but a marathon. A marathon with an end, an end which seems far away but is not and will be upon you before you know it. And the way to get there, to that end, is again to cling to the idea of endurance. The goal is to hold fast to what you know about Christ and not have it stolen from you by a world filled with liars and thieves. Yeah, You look not to yourself for this, but verse 2, looking to Jesus. The, the admonition here is not, hey, you better ship up. Is that right? Shape up. There we go. It's not, hey, you better shape up. It's, hey, look at Jesus. Why are you looking at everything else? Look at Christ. Hear his word. Remember that his word is rest for your soul. He is the founder, the perfecter of your faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He lived a race. He lived a life in which he knew that the shame he received was not what eternity would bring. And so he walked through it, trusting in the vindication of his father, which he certainly received on the day of his resurrection. He despised that shame. And so now here's Ascension talk again. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. For in your struggle against sin, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, right? And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Here's a big shift in the text, right? 
Why, God, did you let this happen to me? How often do we think that? I, I think it often enough, too often, really. Why, God? The answer is because you're his son. Have you forgotten you're his son and what that means? Look at the quote. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines, I like the KGV, the Lord chastens the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall not we much more be subject to the father of spirits and lived? For they, that's the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, that's your father in heaven, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather heal. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Notice the Old Testament talk again. For you know that afterward, when he desired to receive the blessing, he was rejected. All right, so here is a turn in the passage. Where? Because of the confidence you have in Christ, because you know we are working together as a ship to sail through this age, encouraging each other toward endurance, he says, let's walk with straight paths. Let's be a people who love good and not evil. And he begins to list off things that, you know, if we really want to talk about it, it's the Ten Commandments, right? Have no other gods, call upon the name of God, worship every week when you come to his temple, Know that the authorities that are set over you are from him for your discipline. Don't murder. That's abortion too, by the way. Uh, don't commit adultery. That includes pornography and divorce and homosexuality and transgenderism. Don't lie. Don't steal. And understand every time you're discontent and want it to be different, you've just forgotten he's in charge and gave you what you got. Huh? He wants us to see these things as a straight path. You don't have to prove yourself to God. This isn't about how he'll be happy with you. It's about how you can find contentment. You will find contentment in walking straight rather than crooked. Huh? And so again, how did he say it at the start? Strive to be at peace with all people, right? Verse 1 of chapter 13 will continue this idea. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Chapter th or verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Verse 4, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. 
Huh? Just again, listing off what the Ten Commandments are a great summary of, what it means to walk a straight path. But notice why. The end of verse 5. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He goes on. He still has more encouragement for the way to walk. Remember your leaders. That'd be me and Pastor Cyprus. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, what's a pastor? He's a Christian man who stands in front for you to imitate him. That's why if he's not doing that, you got to kick him out, honestly. And if I ever don't, you need to kick me out. But that's what I'm here for, is to say, look, here's the Bible. Here's me believing it. This is what it looks like. Walk this way. Yeah. That never changes. Great verse here, by the way. Just If you don't do anything else this week in Hebrews, come back to chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Right? This is why eating the solid food, you never forget the solid food. It becomes more and more the foundation on which you live, that Christ is one, that his truth is pure, that there is no darkness or shadow in him, that you can know what you stand on. Yeah? As opposed to verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, ah, yeah, by salvation, by talk of Jesus, and not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. That is not talking about the Lord's Supper. He's going to talk about the blood of Jesus in just a moment. It's referring to Judaizing, the practice of eating the sacrifices that the Jews would make, or other forms of pagan sacrifice, or truly, I mean, you want to get religious with somebody, talk about their diet. It's amazing. Politics, and religion, no, it's politics and nutrition is what people get very, very serious about, right? Even though in terms of our spirituality, it can do nothing for us. It can do nothing for us. Don't be led astray by all these stories about what you should be. Now, he just told you what you should be. And the right weight is not one of those things. And I'm not telling you don't be nutritious, don't seek health. You can do that. But that's not a moral, right? It's not something that you, you must do to have a straight path. Rather, again, um, be strengthened by grace. Be strengthened by the knowledge that your body is going to wear out and die. No matter how much oxygen or cold showers or whatever else you do for it to make it great, your body is going to wear out and die. Be strengthened by grace because we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Notice how he is talking about we have an altar to eat from. We do have a food that is a bread from heaven. For the bodies of those animals, verse 11, the old altar, whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Okay, so that means the people he's talking to. Give up the Jewish practices and their meals and come outside of the synagogue to go into the Christian church where we feast upon the body and blood of Jesus. What does that mean for us? We're not leaving the synagogue, but we do have to realize how alien and stranger we are to the rest of this world around us. And we are to leave behind their pagan ways and their pagan worship wherever you find it. Now in the marketplace, you buy what you buy and you find what you find. But again, don't be led astray by strange and diverse teachings. 
Come instead into the place where the holy altar is given to feed you with the grace of God, where he marks you as those redeemed. Yeah, because here, verse 14, here on earth, this is one to highlight too, by the way, it's been big for me this week. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That should sound familiar by now. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders. That's your pastors again, by the way. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, that is those who are writing this and saying this, for we are sure that we have a clean conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Who is the I? That's an interesting question, but we're going to leave that aside and close up with just a, a, a summary of what I just read again. Okay, so here we have no lasting city. I'm going to be just beating on this drum all spring. This world's going to pass away. Your life here is this long. There's going to be an eternity, which is like this life, only perfect. Heaven's not a boring place. Heaven's not where you lose out on what you didn't get done here. Heaven's where what you wish you had here is given in fullness without idolatry and deception. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Therefore, what do we do now? Offer the sacrifice of praise. Go home, open the Bible, find one or two of these passages, read them out loud again this week. Let them become what you believe. Then it says, after that, do good and share. Sounds easy, but it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard. Do good and share. And put that on your wall. Look at it for a while. What does that mean? Obey those who rule your soul. Yeah. Who's that again? That's me. You saw it. It said you're supposed to obey me. So do everything I say, right? No, no, no. But when I speak the Bible to you, you're not allowed to say, oh, I don't like that. When I speak the Bible to you, you're supposed to say, I repent. Teach me, Jesus. Make me believe it. Fill me up with it. I know what I do believe. I know what I want to believe. I know how I ought to walk. I know how I want to walk. Let me be yours, Jesus. That's, That's what that means. And then, like he said of himself, the author, but it's for yourself too, pray for a clean, a good conscience. Pray for an honorable life. Pray that every day you can hold your head high so when the pagans slander you, as they are doing increasingly, you're not bothered by it. I heard a story this week uh, about a a church in in Moscow, Idaho. A lot of people move into Idaho these days. It's, It's former California. That is what Idaho is. All the conservatives that flee California, they go to Idaho. And so it's, it's growing as an area. And, you know, if you want to go somewhere where you're surrounded by like-minded conservatives, well, then, you know, there you go. But here's a story I heard about this church that's doing very well out there. And they got a nice kind of glass pane front on one of the main streets. And every so often, someone will walk by and spit on the glass. Because there's pagans in Idaho, too. And they hate us. 
We're the stench of death to them. They want us to be destroyed. You cannot escape the need for endurance and a life of repentance. You cannot escape the fact that the Philistines are always going to be surrounding us, looking like they're about to attack and overthrow us. Assyria is always going to be at the gates. And if you think by fleeing to some other place, you're going to get a better government that's going to protect you, you're going to find your idol falling down there too. But like Hezekiah again, here we go. Do you know his reference? When Assyria is at the gates, what does he do? He goes into the temple, he falls on his knees, he rends his clothes, he says, Jesus, save me. And that night an angel comes down and destroys all the troops. So again, who are those troops? They're your enemies. They're the liars and the thieves and the demons and the wickedness and the darkness. And the promise is Christ has already bought you. He has held you. So now cling to that. Stand on that and you will find you can lift your head up high, even as everyone else is wallowing in the muck around you. In the name 